This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Blessed is the one. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Well, good morning, church. So glad that you could join us for church online today, wherever you're watching from, be that by yourself at home or with one of our house churches, our church at home house churches scattered across the city. We're so glad that you could join us as we get to what is the tail end of our sermon series in the book of Psalms. Well, today we are camping out in Psalm 73. And again, it's raw, it's real, it's super honest. Uh, And I hope it blesses you. So I'm going to lead us in prayer. Please join me as we pray together. Father, we thank you that your word speaks to us, that you speak to us by your word. Uh, We pray now that you would uh, speak to us by your spirit. God, I know that there are many people who are wrestling with the injustice and unfairness of this world. As we look around, we begin to ponder deep questions about whether or not it's worth following you. So this morning, God, I pray that through your word, You would reveal your sufficiency and your worth and your glory to us. Give us a fresh vision of your glory and magnitude this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name and all of God's people said, Amen, Amen, Amen. Well, I I don't know if you've ever got to the point in your particular faith journey where you have begun to question whether or not it's worth following Jesus. Now, if I'm super honest with you guys, I don't know if I've like properly got there. You know, like I've, maybe I've had moments where like, well, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd have more money or if I, I could do this or that. But I don't know if I've ever really genuinely got to that point where I feel like it's, it's not worth following Jesus at all. But Psalm 73, Asaph, who has written this psalm, is there. This is his personal angst. As he's looked around the world, he's seen this, this dissonance between what he knows to be true and what his experience is. You see, he, he starts off this psalm by saying, truly God is good to Israel. Truly God is good to his people. That's his framework. That's his worldview. That's his belief statement. And yet there is this dissonance between what he believes and what he experiences. Because as he looks around, the reality of experience is the opposite. You see, Asaph believes, Psalm 1, that the Lord blesses the way of the righteous. He watches over the way of the righteous, but he is against the way of the wicked. 
And yet Asaph looks around and his experience is that the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering. You see what it says there in verse 3. He says that he is envious of the wicked. He's envious of the arrogant. He sees their prosperity. He sees their life. He sees their comfort and their ease. And his heart is stirred to envy. And he says to himself, I, I think they've got it better than me. I think they're doing better. They are the ones who are blessed. And you'll see there in verse 3, he says, When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, and that word prosperity there is the Hebrew word shalom, which is often translated peace. And it's what God promises to his people. And he looks around, the psalmist looks around, and he sees that, in fact, it is the wicked and the arrogant and the proud who are receiving God's blessing, his, his shalom, his prosperity is upon them and so he says this in verse 13 surely in vain i have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence all day long i have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments he's at the point where he begins to second guess his loyalty to god uh, this is has this been worth it have I been keeping myself pure? Have I been walking in the way of the Lord in vain? Is this just a giant lame hobby? Or, or is God actually good to his people? It says there that he, he nearly lost his footing. His foot nearly slipped. And he, he uses perhaps a climbing metaphor there of slipping down off a, a rock climb and falling to his, his demise, to his death. And he says, I nearly got there because he began to deconstruct. And this isn't an intellectual deconstruction that Asaph has, much like what we did in our Deconstructing God series. This is an emotional deconstruction, and it is driven by the emotion of envy. Envy. Envy has smuggled its way into Asaph's heart, and he's begun to, it has begun to rob him of his joy in the Lord, and it threatens to steal his very faith altogether. As I was preparing this week, I came, I came across this incredible quote from Paul Tripp about envy, and it says this. Let, just let this sink in for you for a second. It's so profound. You must understand that envy is an interpretation. Envy is not an emotional response to what is. It's a particular interpretation of what is. Envy is a way of looking at and assessing what is, that results in particular emotions and actions. Now, but this needs to be said even more strongly. Envy is not only an interpretation of what is, it is a distorted interpretation of what is. Envy is looking at life through a rippled window that will always distort whatever you see. In that way, envy is madness. In its own way, envy separates you from reality. Now, what, what a quote. But that's where Asaph is. He finds himself in a place of envy. And he experiences a distorted interpretation of reality. A distorted interpretation of what is. So how has he done that? Well, the first distortion that, uh, that Asaph has is that his interpretation of reality is one-sided. Have, have a look at what he sees when he looks around. As he looks around, he sees that the arrogant and wicked are healthy. Verse 4, they have no struggles. 
Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. I mean, effectively, he's saying they're, they're basically from Bondi, right? They've got perfectly tanned skin, sculpted, toned bodies, symmetrical everything. They're, they're like men's and women's health cover worthy. They're beautiful, healthy people. They're always fit. They're always exercising. They never get sick. They're healthy. As he looks around, he sees that they're powerful, they're influential, even when they're not doing good. This is what it says in verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They've got swagger, they've got um, arrogance, and they've got a fair dose of ego to them. And they flaunt their lives, they boast about their successes, they even boast about how dodgy they are, and they misuse their power and influence for their own needs. They're arrogant, they mock, they even mock God, and it seems like there are no consequences for their actions. And yet, despite all of that, they gain an influence. People look to them. They follow them. They want to know what they're doing. They follow their Insta profile. And I don't really know what the cultural equivalent it is, but it seems at least in Australia, maybe the, the bikies are a good equivalent. Outlaw motorcycle gangs who are clearly criminal organizations, but yet admired by certain sections of our community and, and strut the streets and it seems like the police are unable to do anything about them. They're powerful, they're influential, they're arrogant. Thirdly, they're wealthy. Have a look at what he says in verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. You know, their deception, their corruption, their, their lies, their oppression, it doesn't, it doesn't lead to their undoing. In fact, it makes them rich. They are getting rich off their corruption. They're getting rich off their oppression of the poor and the weak. Their cheating and their defiance is actually leading to their blessing, not their cursing. Whatever happened to the old saying, you know, cheaters never prosper. It's what Asaph is going through his head. The reality is, that's just not always true. It's not always true that cheaters never prosper. You know, our kids, um, in the morning, we have a, a babysitter for our kids as Tash and I frantically rush around to get ready for work, and uh, it's, it's called the TV. And the kids watch this TV show called Blaze and the Monster Machines. And all the parents out there in the morning who do the same uh, know what I'm about to say. But in, the premise of this show is that life is like a giant competition. Every episode is about a race that occurs and the two main characters are Blaze, who's the good monster truck, and the protagonist, who is a bad monster truck called Crusher. And Crusher cheats. Every single episode, he cheats. He cheats in order to win, and he loses every single episode. And as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, this show is indoctrinating my kids. So I start talking to him. I think, well, guys, what do you think about people who cheat? Do cheaters always lose? And Jude's like, absolutely not. Everyone cheats at footy at lunch and they always win and it's never fair. But the reality is that view of life is idealistic. Cheaters never prosper. Just doesn't speak of the reality of our experience. 
I wonder if you've ever been there. You've looked around at our world, at our culture, at your colleagues, your neighbors, your friends, perhaps even your family, and you think this equation just doesn't add up. It doesn't feel fair. How come they do all of these things and there are no repercussions and their life feels better than mine? You know, perhaps you've chosen to reject the hookup culture. You've chosen to believe God's vision for marriage and for sexuality and you've held out and yet your colleagues at work or your friends have had multiple sexual partners, a string of one night stands and yet they are happily married with beautiful children and an envious life and you're single and lonely. And you think to yourself, is this better? Or, or maybe um, you've been honest at work, you've chosen not to lie, you've chosen not to um, manipulate and be deceptive, you've chosen not to uh, you know, do what the boss says when the boss says to do the wrong thing, and yet your colleagues do exactly the opposite of that and they're the ones who are rewarded with employee of the month or rewarded with a promotion and you're looked over. And you think to yourself, is this fair? Is this how life works? Maybe you're um, the one who's been watching your health, eating healthy, exercising, making sure that you're uh, watching your calorie intake, eating a really healthy diet and, and yet all of your friends seem to be partying and drinking and smoking, not watching what they eat at all and then you're the one who gets a crippling health diagnosis. And you think, how is this fair? Or maybe you're the one who studies really hard, pulls long nights, conscientious student, and, and you work really hard to get your, your distinctions, and then the student next to you cheats in an exam, gets a HD, and they're the one who gets promoted to the honors course instead of you. And you think, how is this fair? You know, the reality is it's always easier to believe that the grass is greener on the other side. And that is the problem with envy. It's not an emotional response to what is. It's a distorted interpretation of what is. You see, Asaph only sees the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph only sees their wins. Asaph only sees their successes. He's looking at their Instagram-filled version of life and he hasn't bothered to check whether or not, whether or not that's actually reality. He sees an interpretation. He sees one side and he doesn't see the full picture. Of course it's true that sometimes the good die young and cheaters never prosper. It's not true all the time that the wicked always get away with it. Sometimes they get caught. Sometimes the law catches up with them. Sometimes they do get arrested. Sometimes they are caught stealing stuff from the office. Sometimes the exam is found out to be a fraud. But not all the time. You see, Asaph has a problem, and his problem is one of perspective. He's only seen one side of the story. Well, his second problem there is that it is short-sighted. His, his interpretation is short-sighted. He sees only the now, and he doesn't see the forever. This is what it says in verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, God. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. You see, envy is not only a distorted interpretation of 
what happens on the other side of the fence. It's also a distorted interpretation of time. See, too often we buy into this consumeristic YOLO hedonism of our generation, of our culture, and we believe that we have to live our best lives now. And it's funny how that's no different from Asaph's experience whenever this was pent. And yet we forget that this life is a blip. It's a, it's a mist. It's like a fraction of a nanosecond when it compares to eternity. But I don't know about you, as I, as I look around, I can feel that. I can know that to be true, but I can feel that, look around and see the way people live and think they've got it all. They seem to be blessed. They seem to be comfortable and healthy and wealthy and their life is easy. And we forget what Jesus says in Mark 8, 36, where he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Yeah, think of that, um, that Jim Carrey quote where he says, um, I wish that everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Now, intuitively, we know that to be true, right? Uh, it's, not, it's not particularly sage wisdom there from Jim Carrey because we know that life is more important than the sum total of our possessions and the car we drive and the house we live in. But we are so caught up in the tide and flow of the culture that we're a part of, that it begins to tug at our hearts and we begin to see a discontinuity between where our hearts lie and where our heads are. And that's Asaph's problem. Envy has smuggled its way into his heart. And so the question is, how do we move from a place of envying people to arriving at a place where we desire God more than anything else that this world has to offer? Well, Asaph resolves his distorted interpretation of reality, his distorted interpretation of what is, by this. Have a look at what it says in verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Until when? Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood. Then I saw their final destiny. See, Asaph enters the sanctuary. He, he enters the temple. And what does he see when he does? He, he walks in and he sees people praying. He sees people worshipping God. He sees the priest offering sacrifices. He sees blood spilt and, and people participating in worship to Yahweh. And in that moment, suddenly his eyes are lifted and he has a perspective shift. He begins to see the frosted glass that he's been looking through. He notices it. He realizes that, in fact, he's been created for worship and not consumerism and accumulation and success and health. In the presence of God, Asaph, is, Asaph sorry, is drawn into a new reality. He's given an eternal perspective. As he encounters God's presence, his outlook, his vision, the angle that he's been looking on shifts and changes. Kind of reminds me of that old hymn. I don't know if you grew up singing this in church that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know, it can be so much harder for me to be discontent with what I have now when I keep my eyes fixed on the face and the presence of God and keep my gaze firmly fixed on the promises that lie ahead for us. 
Asaph encounters the presence of God and it gives him a new perspective. But the perspective shift also brings a shift in desire, a change in desire. Have a look at what he says in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you, O God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, Asaph replaces his envy over people and the things that he sees with his distorted interpretation. He replaces that with a deep desire for God. You see, the solution for wayward desires is not to get rid of desire altogether, but to satisfy that desire with something that truly, truly takes our thirst and our hunger away. And that can only be satisfied with God. So yeah, I might not have the partner that I desire for, but I have God. I may not have the job that's satisfying, but I I have God. I may not have the health that I'm longing for, but I have God. I may not have all the money that I'm wanting, but I have God. I may not have the house or the comfort or the ease or whatever else you're longing for, but I have God and He is enough. He is enough. And when we don't desire Him, because I mean, let's be honest, right? Whom have I in heaven but you? My heart desires nothing else on this earth but you, God. Now, I don't know how you know what percentage of your heart does that purely. But when we don't do that, when we don't desire Him, when we find our hearts being pulled, we too must return to the presence of God and get a new perspective on our reality and have our distorted interpretation of this world put right and given fresh eyes and having the faith to see and to cling to the promises of God that lie ahead. To be reminded of the full picture, not just the one side, and the long view, not just the temporal and the now. God is enough. So if you're watching this this morning and you say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, I want to remind you of this truth. Are you finding your satisfaction in God? He is enough. Get yourself in His presence. Spend time in His Word. Listen to Him. Pray to Him. Pour your heart out. As we encounter God's presence, He begins to shift our perspective and satisfy our longing souls with the only thing that will truly satisfy. But perhaps you're watching this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And you feel like your life is empty. You're constantly chasing. And and when you arrive there, you look back and you think, is this it? And then you're on to the next thing. Maybe it's time to give up the chase. Maybe it's time to realize that you too are looking through a frosted lens. We believe that if you encounter the grace, mercy and goodness of Jesus, if you put your faith and trust in his finished work on the cross, that he died for your sin to take your place, he will completely set you free and give you a whole new outlook on life. Wherever you're at this morning, we hope that this word blesses you. If you would like to become a Christian and put your faith and trust in Jesus, why don't you click the button in the link there in the chat there that says, I want to give my life to Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus and need prayer, please reach out. Click the prayer button. One of our team would love to pray for you. Love you, Anchor Church. Bless you. Look forward to seeing you guys at church online soon. Let me close for us in prayer as we transition to worship. Uh, Father God, we confess that so often our hearts are pulled by the desires of this world. Our eyes simply don't see properly. So God, I pray for every single person who's watching this morning that they would so encounter your presence, 
so encounter your, your grace and your love that you would radically shift their perspective and help them to see that you truly are enough. We pray this in Jesus' strong name and all of God's people said, Amen, Amen, Amen. Bless you, Church. Bless you.